You are listening to the San Antonio Zen Center Dharma Talks. The San Antonio Zen Center is supported solely by donation, so that everyone can participate in our offerings and programs, regardless of income. If you are able, please consider making a donation to SAZC through the donation button on our site, sanantoniozen.org, or by visiting paypal.me slash sanantoniozen. Thank you for your practice and enjoy the talk. Good morning. Good morning. Um, since I just came back from a pilgrimage in Spain, it's probably not a big surprise that I'm going to talk about pilgrimage practice today. Um, pilgrimage in general, you can probably think about pilgrimages around the world that you've heard of. There's the Hajj in uh, the Holy Land for Muslim people. There's um, in Tibet, there's quite a strong pilgrimage tradition for people who are going to Lhasa. There is a pilgrimage trail in Japan. Um, I think it lasts about a week and includes visits to a number of Japanese temples. Um, but I participated in a pilgrimage walk in Spain. And this won't come as a big shock to some members of the Sangha because we've had about a half a dozen people now who have gone to Spain to walk part of the pilgrimage road. So pilgrimage in general, I think you could define as um, a spiritual journey, an act of devotion, it usually entails some measure of difficulty, physical difficulty or suffering. Um, it's also been uh, something, that, a way that criminals could serve their sentences by undertaking a pilgrimage journey. Uh, in Spain, or in Europe in general, pilgrimage became very popular during the Middle Ages in the Catholic Church. It was seen as an act of devotion, but I guess my understanding is that it was also seen by the Catholic Church as a way to expiate your sins or to spend less time in purgatory. Um, so in Europe, especially from about the 1100s to the 1500s, there were some major pilgrimage roads, Catholic pilgrimages. One was to Rome, for obvious reasons, that's where the Pope was. One was to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. And the third was to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, in Western Spain. And the reason that came about was one of Jesus' apostles, James, um, preached in Spain for a few years after the death of Jesus. Apparently he wasn't very successful, so he returned to the Holy Land, and there he was executed. And the story goes that his followers took his remains back to Spain and buried them somewhere in western Spain. And then everyone promptly forgot where they were buried. Um, miraculously, in the ninth century, they were rediscovered. And I think the story goes that it was by a shepherd and it had something to do with stars that he followed, which sounds pretty familiar in the Christian faith. Um, and uh, the bones of 
St. James were, how would you say it, sort of officially certified by the Pope as the true remains of the saint. So the city of Santiago de Compostela grew up around the church that was founded and where the bones of St. James were interred. Um, and for various reasons, this became a popular pilgrimage route for people in Europe, partly because of um, sometimes there were wars going on in the Holy Land and precluded people traveling there. Uh, some people lived in Spain or across the border in what was becoming France, and they found that, that route to be fairly easy, easier than going to some of the other pilgrimage places. So this became a popular route from France, and, and there, there's not just one Camino or Way of St. James. There are many. There are some that come up from Portugal, from England, from Germany, um, from, and even within Spain, from Madrid, from southern Spain. Uh, basically, if you were a pilgrim in the Middle Ages, the, the Camino or the way began wherever your front door was. I mean, there was no other way to get there except walk or horseback. So pilgrims would undertake this journey um, which involved, obviously, a lot of hardship. Uh, life was dangerous in those times. So a pilgrim walking to Santiago would encounter bad weather, <coughs> bad food, criminals preying on wild animals, um, any number of things that caused their deaths, really. Um, and there are accounts of pilgrims coming across across the remains of other pilgrims who had been eaten by wolves. So this was a pretty tough journey to make. Um, pilgrimage began to decline. At one point, I read that 10% of the European population at any given time was on pilgrimage. So this really was a big thing. And yet, because of wars in Europe and uh, natural disasters and various things, pilgrimage declined. The pilgrimage to Santiago, in particular, by the 1800s, was pretty much a thing of the past. Very few pilgrims would still attempt the trip to Santiago. Um, I think in the 1960s, when you, when you go to, when you make this pilgrimage, you, uh, uh, when you get to Santiago, you go to uh, uh, an office that's run by the church, and you tell them, okay, I started here, and I walked, or I took a horse or whatever, all the way here, and they uh, would um, verify that, yes, you had walked this distance, and they'd give you a certificate. And in the 70s, 1970s, only 50 or 100 people got their certificate. So this really had kind of fallen apart. Um, but interest renewed, and, and I should say that the, because of the pilgrimage road, towns and villages grew up along that route to serve the pilgrims. Um, there were what they called hospitals, but if you think of the word hospitality and hospital share the same root, 
these hospitals were not just places where people went when they were ill or injured, it's where pilgrims would stop and find a place to rest and something to eat. Um, they were usually supported by wealthy families and then run by the church. So a pilgrimage, Pilgrim's Hospital would be established in an area and then a town would grow up along it. Well, by the late 20th century, many of these little towns and villages were pretty much gone. Uh, the people, the young people who lived there had gone off to find work elsewhere. Uh, many times there was only a few old people left. Uh, people kept their property there, but they'd only come back once or twice a year to celebrate a local fiesta or something like that. So um, even the, the infrastructure that had once supported this Pilgrim Road had declined pretty much. There was one um, village in the 70s that had been a major stop to have a Pilgrim's Hospital, and by the 70s only two people still lived in the village, and most, most of the buildings had actually completely fallen apart. So interest revived. I'm not sure exactly why, but it was kind of spearheaded in the 1980s by a priest who lived in one of the little mountain villages, and he wanted to revive the spirit of the Camino. So he and his supporters started painting yellow arrows on the, on the route so that people would find it easier to make the pilgrimage because, you know, by the, the 20th century, the early 20th century, people didn't even remember sometimes where the road was supposed to be. So he and his uh, yellow arrows made it easy for people who were either dedicated devoted to the idea of pilgrimage, or just out looking for some adventure, maybe, to uh, go hiking in Spain and follow these yellow arrows. Pretty cool. So eventually, this caught on, this idea of pilgrimage, uh, word spread about it, and people were enticed. They were called for one reason or another. And by last year, 300,000 people got their certificates in Santiago. Um, so there's really been a, a big revival. And the most traveled uh, Camino is still from the, uh, across, not northern Spain along the coast, but still through northern Spain from the French border. Uh, many people start just on the other side of the Pyrenees in, in a little town called Saint-Jean and come over the Pyrenees and across, um, go across a couple of mountain ranges, the high plateau, more mountains, and then you finally get to Santiago de Compostela. Uh, it's called the French route, Camino Frances. Um, the infrastructure has really exploded in the last few years, which means that People now know that there is a way to have a very inexpensive uh, trip through Spain. The infrastructure is, basically, these little towns and villages are only, and many times, a few kilometers apart. You can, sometimes you can see the next village from the one you're in. The most we ever had to walk, I think, from one real town to another was about 15 miles. 16 miles. So in each little village or little town, 
are places to stay. They're called albergues. Or in, in France, I think they call them auberge. Um, and these albergues are run sometimes by the province, the provincial government, or the, the town. Sometimes they're run by the church. And then now many of them are privately owned. Um, within the last 10 years, there have been a lot of private albergues opened. They usually have a couple of big rooms in them with a lot of bunks. And there could be four to six bunks in there, or there could be 20 bunks or more in there. Um, and it's just a mattress. And down the hall is a communal bathroom, often with uh, two or three toilets, a couple of showers, a couple of sinks. And for this, you might pay anywhere between five and 10 euros a night. So this is what about $6 or $6.50 to $12. Well, that's pretty attractive to people. And each little village usually has a bar, which is a combination bar, cafe, and often they also have rooms to let upstairs. So um, on a typical day, a pilgrim would arise from their bunk bed they might get some quick breakfast where they stayed, usually just toast uh, with jam. That's it, coffee, coffee everywhere. Um, hit the road, usually by about 6.30 or 7 in the morning. Some people leave at 5, 5.30 and walk in the dark uh, because they're covering longer distances. So you walk for maybe a couple of hours, you get to the next town, there's a nice little bar with coffee, croissants, and uh, you're tired by that time. So you'll sit down and take a break for 30, 40 minutes, and then you'll get up and walk again for another two or three hours, stop and have lunch somewhere, uh, maybe walk for another two or three hours in the afternoon before you get to a town where you plan to spend the night. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about pilgrim life and how my practice relates to it. But what I want to say right now is that because this is such a, sounds like a great vacation, you know, you <laughs> say, wow, you know, my friends and I want to go to Spain and walk 15 miles a day and stay in this little cheap place and eat great food and, and see this beautiful countryside. Well, so it's not only pilgrims who are attracted to that, there are a lot of students, retired people, um, people just looking for something different. Um, but I honestly think it was always like this on the Pilgrim Road. It was not only pilgrims, it was people looking for adventure, uh, people looking to trade, you know, to, to make money on the Camino. There were people who uh, intended to prey on the pilgrims on the road, steal from them. So it's always been thus, you know, it's not only pilgrims on the road, it's, it's, it's humanity on the road for all different reasons. Um, so that's kind of a typical day. And I can say that uh, doing a pilgrimage, in my mind, is very much like um, doing a retreat, a longer retreat. In fact, the first, I first walked two years ago, um, 
three of my oldest friends and I were together and someone said, well, let's go to Spain and walk this Camino de Santiago. And we all said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Big undertaking, but you know, let's try it. So one by one, they dropped out. And there was only me left. And my husband said, well, why don't you just go alone? And I thought, yes, this will be like a 300-mile walking meditation. I'll make it a retreat. And I'll go as a pilgrim. And my intention was to walk the whole way if I could, to carry my pack, because you carry everything you need for the time you're there. So you can't carry very much, because if you do, the weight of the pack will cause you to be injured, or to at least not enjoy your Camino. Um, so you take a sleeping bag or something to sleep in. You take two changes of clothes. So that means two short sleeve shirts, two long sleeve shirts, two pairs of convertible pants, if you're traveling when the weather's cool, so that you can zip, unzip them and have shorts, and they, they turn into shorts. Um, a little bit of shampoo, a comb, a light for your head in case you're going to be walking in the dark. Um, it all adds up to about, for me, the first time, about 15 pounds. And then you have to have something to carry water in as well. So um, you're carrying this pack, and where was I? I was talking about um, sorry. Oh, my practice. Yes. So I was going as a pilgrim. That was my intention to carry my pack the whole way and to walk the whole way, 300 miles. So this was very much a spiritual journey for me. Um, and it is like a retreat in that um, eventually, over the course of a few days, your mind really settles down. And you begin to just experience what is with you. Uh, so for example, in a retreat, you know, after a few days, you stop thinking, when is the dough one going to ring the bell? When can we eat? You know, I really have to go to the bathroom. You just kind of are there, and you're okay with that. Well, when you're walking mile after mile, day after day, your mind settles down, just like in a retreat, so that you're just um, hearing your feet crunch on the gravel, and you're listening to the cuckoo, the call of the cuckoo across the fields, and you're watching and listening to the wheat fields blow in the wind. And you just experience that. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's just a very special experience to really get outside your identity, get outside your usual frame of mind. Not to say that that doesn't come up, just as in meditation retreats. Um, one day I was walking along and I, I suddenly caught myself thinking about something that had happened years ago, what I should have said and what I should have done, and blah, blah, blah. And I pulled up short and I thought, well, I can think of this at home. I can think about this anywhere, but now I'm in Spain, you know, and here's this beautiful blue sky and these wheat fields and let's just be with Spain. So there are opportunities like that for practice on a pilgrimage. 
and of many times, as in sitting meditation, thoughts and judgments would come up. Um, as I said, not all of the people on Camino were there as pilgrims. There are people who um, are only walking a short distance. Maybe that's all the time they have. Maybe they only have a week. People in Europe often go for a week or two at a time on their vacations, and then they'll go back again and again until they complete the journey. Um, so, and, and they don't carry their pack. They send their pack ahead with the transportation service. And all they have on their back or on their shoulder is a little bag for water and sunglasses and some hand lotion, things like that. Cell phones. Um, and they're going maybe with friends, maybe they see it as a long bar hop, you know, to drink and party. Uh, you've got young people, you've got old people with different ideas of what this Camino is to them. And it's easy to get caught up in this uh, uh, series of judgments about who the people are <laughs> that are with you. Uh, when I went two years ago, I, I walked one day through pouring rain for about five hours. And when I got to the little town where I was going to be staying, a van pulled up. And the driver opened the back of it, and there was just this, it was packed full of suitcases and backpacks, people who had sent theirs ahead. Here I am walking through the rain for hours. I got my pack on. You know, this is not right. This is not right. This, they're not doing this the right way. Um, and one day, I looked down at this beautiful rock. It was... Too big to bring with me, obviously. Probably weighed 25 pounds. But it was beautiful. I thought, wow, that would be great in my garden. And suddenly I thought, these thoughts that I've got about these people and how they're doing their communion, how they're walking it, why they're walking it, those thoughts are like stones, like this big rock. Do I really want to carry these thoughts with me? I don't want to carry this rock. Let's just leave that rock be and not worry about how they're doing their communion. But when I got there this time, <laughs> I was going through the same process over and over again. Um, and maybe because I had had some physical problems and some suffering on my first Camino, and I felt like that had made it more meaningful to me, I felt like these other people should be suffering more. <laughs> you know. And the suitcases in two years had just gotten bigger. <laughs> and there were more of them being sent ahead. So I was very judgmental about it, and, and that, to me, also reflected on my practice, because oftentimes we feel like we kind of uh, have an insight, and we get it, you know, maybe about judging people or whatever, and we find a way to get over it, but it doesn't last. You know, if you put it in a bottle and keep it there forever, that kind of insight, it'd be great, but uh, chances are it's going to keep and maybe in another situation or a different form, but I found that um, I was just as bad or worse than the first time. Um, a pilgrimage is uh, like a, a meditation retreat and that a lot of insights, I think, do come up. Um, you know, a lot of it is just daily random thoughts, but every now and then there will be something that really comes through to you that 
is uh, helpful in, in your daily life. For me, the first trip I took, that was uh, one of the great, probably the best insight I had was you have to find your own pace in everything, especially when you're making a pilgrimage like that. Um, I trained, I probably walked two or three hundred miles before I left for Spain. And yet when I got there, I got blisters. And once I got blisters, I started walking strangely, <laughs> favoring my foot and favoring my hip. Finally, I ended up with tendonitis in my ankle. And I did have to send my pack a couple of days with the transport service because I wanted to keep walking. And at that point, if I continued to carry my heavy pack, I was not going to make it. So the reason I started having problems, I believe, was because there were some people I had met that I was walking with, and they walked faster than I did. And they walked further than I did. Um, there are what they call stages on the Camino in between towns where there is infrastructure available, albergues and bars and you know, beautiful churches that you want to visit. So they were walking longer stages than I was really comfortable with physically. But I was pushing myself to keep up with them at first. Um, so that led to part of my problems. I wasn't walking at my own pace. There was also, there seems always on Camino, there is a rumor going around that there will not be beds for you when you get to the next town. Well, you know, we're programmed to know where we're going to sleep at night we're going to get our food and the things that we need to keep us alive and happy. If you really go as a pilgrim on Camino, um, you try to find a way to let that go. Um, you can, some people make reservations ahead the whole way where they're going to sleep at night. Some, of, some people pay companies to make those arrangements for them. Um, but if you're going to go as a pilgrim, and my intention was um, I'm going to eat when I'm hungry and I'm going to rest when I'm tired. So I'm not going to make reservations ahead. I'm just going to walk until I find a place that where I'm too tired to go any further and I'll stay there, or a place that, that just really speaks to me. Um, and I'll stay there. So the first night I did that, as I left um, two years ago, Second night, everybody was saying there are no beds in such and such a place. So at lunchtime, I stopped and made a reservation by email because all the bars and, and, and albergues now have Wi-Fi, <laughs> something that pilgrims obviously didn't have. They had luxury. <coughs> um, and I made it at an albergue that was the worst place I stayed on that trip. And after that, I said, that's it. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll just throw my faith to the wind, have faith that I will find a place to sleep and a place to eat. I will not die on the way. <laughs> Worst case, if there's no place for me to sleep, I'll take a taxi to the next place if I can't walk on. And in the morning, I'll bring a, have a taxi back and then I'll continue my walk. Well, that's the worst that's going to happen for you. Um, or maybe you'll have to sleep on the floor somewhere in a church or in a gym. Um, and as it turned out, there was only one time I had to queue up for a bed in one town, and I got a bed, so not a big deal. So, um, walking a Camino is also an exercise in patience, which I think is a great part of our practice. 
patients with the infrastructure. Many of the bars are family-run. There's one person walk, uh, working in each one at any given time. And all of a sudden, 10 or 15 pilgrims arrive in that bar. And there's one person behind the bar making coffee, making sandwiches, cleaning up. And it takes a while for them to get to you. So you just have to be patient. And you just have to realize, hey, they're doing the best that they can. They may not be moving fast enough for you because you're hungry and you're tired. That's just the way it is. It's patience with other people, especially in the dorms. Um, some people believe that they should be up at 5.30 in the morning rattling plastic bags and stuffing their sleeping bag and getting ready for the day and talking to their friends. Or they're a little inebriated and they come in late at night, you're supposed to have lights out at 10 o'clock and everybody be quiet, but it doesn't always work that way. People have been out drinking all that good Spanish wine and they come in late and they're talking and so you're laying there thinking, don't they understand that they need to be quiet, they need to be considerate. They're keeping me awake. <laughs> uh, what's wrong with these people? So that kind of thing can really uh, be difficult to learn to live with. It's very good practice. And then also, as, as in our practice, uh, you know, on a retreat, you try to be courteous to other people, the flip side of what you encounter sometimes in the dorm. And you have to pay attention to that when you're walking your own Camino. You know, be considerate of the people around you. Try to get your sleeping bag all arranged so that when you come in at night, you don't have to make any noise. Um, uh, don't jump in front of people at, at the bar. And if, you know, if they've been there first, let them go first. Um, if you see somebody on the way who is having physical problems, you know, their feet are bothering them, or they need ibuprofen or something like that, stop and, you know, is there something I can do for you? Um, show some compassion. We're all sort of in this together. And there is a great spirit of togetherness on the Camino in many ways. Um, local people will help you. Other pilgrims will help you. And that's part of the most beautiful part of, the, of walking it. Um, so those are the ways, to me, that, that a pilgrimage walk, such as the one in Spain, is, uh, can be part of our practice as a Zen practitioner, or as a Zen student. I did notice some things uh, on the second trip. I, I really didn't expect to go back to Spain anytime soon, but um, I talked about it so much, and my husband looked at my picture so long <laughs> and so often that last fall he said, well, I think I could do that. And I didn't say anything, except, yeah, you probably could or something. I didn't say anything else because, to me, you don't talk somebody into walking a Camino. It's something that they have to decide to do for themselves. And he brought it up a couple more times, and finally I said, well, if you want to do it, let's go. And he said, well, but if we do it, I want to start from the French side. <laughs> so now we're talking 500 miles. And that's a pretty big commitment. And my husband is, I'm 65, my husband is 76. He's in very good physical health. 
he exercises and he walks a lot, but still, this is a big undertaking. Um, so, and towards the end of the time before we left for Spain, I started getting this feeling that maybe this wasn't a really good idea. You know, going on your own is one thing because you decide when you're going to do this or that. And if the food doesn't turn out quite the way you thought it was going to be, eh, so what? I'm grateful to have food at all. I'm hungry. Um, but then other people have different kinds of expectations. We've been married for 30-some years, and uh, I think we know each other pretty well. We appreciate each other. But I did find that going with other people is quite a different experience. In fact, we started out with Three of us. The third person was a was one of the people who was going to walk with me two years ago, and we had to drop out. When she found out we were going, she said, "Can I tag along?" And, and I couldn't very well say no because she was the reason that I went two years ago, and I've known her for over forty years, although not well. We kind of share a best friend from years ago. So uh, I had not only my husband, whom I knew well. But this other person, who I'd known for a long time, but not well at all. And uh, when we got there, turns out my friend doesn't sleep well. She doesn't sleep well at home in her own bed. And after a few nights sleeping in a room with other people, especially about the third night, we stayed in a little albergue. We had a room with about 10 people, 12 people in it. Two of the people were a father and son from Australia. And uh, as my husband put it, one of them was snoring from one end and the other was snoring <laughs> from the other end. <laughs> so after a few nights of this, my friend uh, realized that she really couldn't do this. Um, she also struggled with the food. She's a vegetarian, and it's a little bit hard on the Camino to uh, be a strict vegetarian. You have to be a little bit flexible. You know, can I eat fish? Can I eat eggs? Is it okay if the broth is made with chicken? These were the kind of decisions she had to make every time we sat down to eat. So for her, it was really a struggle. So here was my idea of a Camino, being a pilgrim, letting go of everything, just being grateful for whatever you receive, whatever bed you're sleeping in, whatever the food is like, just be happy with that. Um, with two people who, one, my husband, pretty good rolling with things, but my friend, not so much. So she actually ended up uh, leaving us after 200 miles, which was the right decision for her. In fact, she took responsibility. She, we were walking one day and she said, well, you know, is this different for you uh, this time because we're with you? And I said, well, I said, yes, it really is. And she said, how so? And I said, well, I have to rethink accommodations for one thing. Well, I think from that, and, and that was what I really had to do somehow, because I felt like the tour guide, and I felt responsible for people. Um, she took responsibility for herself, which was great. Um, you know, she's not a shrinking violet, she's an intelligent woman, great sense of humor, and she did see the humor in some of this, and she would start making her own accommodation arrangements after having a meltdown one 
right. <laughs> um, so it worked out all right. Um, but with my husband, uh, I have to say, being with someone instead of being alone was not as satisfying. Because I didn't feel like I was on uh, a meditation trip. I was not on retreat. I still tried to keep the attitude of a pilgrim, of one with an open heart and an open mind. And a lot of that was geared towards making his trip successful. Because this was not so much a spiritual journey for him. It's just something that, that he saw as um, an accomplishment. I'm 76 years old and he walked 500 miles. That's pretty good. Um, in the dormant, we slept in a few dormitories and he found it interesting. Um, he enjoyed talking to the people who stayed in the dormitories more so than the other, the other people that we met because it was a shared experience. You have a communal meal together. Uh, you, the question comes up constantly, you know, why are you doing this Camino? Why are you walking the Camino? What's, what, how did you hear about the Camino? Why did you decide to walk this? And so they're deeper conversations, more interesting conversations. You really learn about humanity. Um, and he was very good about, you know, there are a lot of beautiful walks in Spain, but in 500 miles, some of it's going to be really boring. And a lot of it's really hard. Spain, I don't, I don't think there's one square foot of Spain that doesn't have rocks in it. <laughs> it's the rockiest place. And it's not very level, most of it. Most of it's either up or down. And you go up and down a lot every day. But there was one road, um, it was uh, about 15 miles of straight nothingness. No towns, one little coffee oasis, somebody operating out of a trailer, and um, uh, hot. It was hot that day. So, and, and it's flat. Wheat fields, and that's pretty much it. And he was getting kind of bored, and so I pulled out my trusty iPhone, and I, I read to him what this was that we were walking on. It was a Roman road. It was built over 2,000 years ago. And it hasn't changed. We're still walking it. They just put a new surface on it every so often. We're talking just loose rocks and gravel. It's not paved. Some of the Camino is uh, walking alongside the highway. Some of it's walking on a little paved farm road. Some of it's walking on a little path this wide. Some of it's walking on the Roman road. Some of it's walking through people's uh, backyards. Some of it's the places where the sheep and the cows and the chickens and the pigs also traverse. And so there's lots of things to avoid <laughs> if you don't want to get cow poop all over your shoes. So I read him what this road was, and he realized what the history was that he was walking on. And uh, I was really glad that I was able to uh, kind of get over my disappointment in how our Camino was unfolding and help him to uh, appreciate what he was doing. Um, I haven't asked him yet I'm not sure he's ready to say or if he's even thought about it. You know, just like a, a meditation retreat, walking a Camino, walking a long distance like that, or any kind of pilgrimage, gets you outside your comfort zone. You know, with people that you don't know, you may not even like them. Um, 
you may find them difficult to deal with. Uh, you don't know where you're going to eat and sleep that day. You don't know what the weather's going to be. You're hoping for good weather, but maybe one day it rains, and it doesn't matter if it rains. You put your cover on your pack, and you put on your poncho or your rain jacket, and you just keep walking. Um, so I haven't asked him yet, once he got out of his comfort zone, if he learned anything. Because to me, that, that is the reason for going, for me, for going on a meditation retreat. To force myself out of my comfort zone and see what I learn about myself and the world in general. Um, and I feel like I did learn a lot on my first Camino. This one, I learned more about um, my relationship, I guess, with my husband and overcoming my own expectations. So I don't know yet what, what he found out when he got beyond his comfort zone. Uh, for my friend who only completed 200 miles, she realized that she really loved her life as it is and her family. She didn't want to be disconnected. You know, if, if we were walking through uh, some countryside that she felt was boring, she'd be listening to a podcast or checking on the news or texting her family instead of just being where she was. You know, she couldn't deal with that. So she learned she really didn't want to get too far out of her comfort zone. She appreciated where she was. Uh, some people talk about uh, uh, wanting to change things in their lives. They realize that walking as a pilgrim, having a very simple life, not much to think about each day, uh, carrying all you need on your back for six weeks at a time, they want to carry that kind of simplicity back into their lives. So that's something that people might discover. So that, those, I think, are the primary ways that I felt my pilgrimage uh, related to my practice. And I try to bring the attitude of a pilgrim into my life to my practice. There's people say uh, a pilgrim is grateful, a tourist demands. That's one, one of the, not, I wouldn't say that's a conflict, but the difference between the people who are on Camino as a pilgrimage and those who go for social reasons or just to have a nice vacation. And you know, the pilgrims kind of get this superior attitude, like they're entitled to have people recognize that they're walking further and they're carrying their packs and, you know, you should respect me more. But I think there is a lot to the saying because, uh, uh, you know, if you can be grateful just to have a bed, well, okay, maybe the sheets aren't quite like they are at home. It's not as comfortable. It's a hard bed. Hey, I'm happy to have it after walking 20 miles. Um, Okay, I got this sandwich, my friend got this sandwich, and it had tomato on it, and you know when you take the stem out, there's that little thing that's left in there that's kind of hard and not very edible, and so usually you kind of cut it out. They didn't cut it out on her sandwich. And she noticed that, she was not happy with that. Well, you can be unhappy with that, or you can just say, okay, I'll eat around it, you know, what's the difference? Why bring it up? It's just happy to have a meal. Um, so I do try to think during the day, am I grateful or am I demanding? Because this is what I, quote, need, unquote, or want. 
think I'll stop there.